say. So I don't know what your brain is like this time of year. Mine is a bit mulchy. It's tired. I've sandpapered this thing on endless deadlines and things. They're just, just trying to get it done. But I was saying to someone, my brain is like in a dwell, but I feel so peaceful. <laughs> so, and I think it's the peace of Christ that I'm experiencing. So I get to bring the final message in our series on identity, but I also want to just ask you to be praying for young Hannah, um, Rhea and Lee's uh, oldest uh, uh, daughter, who's going into high-risk surgery on Tuesday for 10 hours, 8 hours, one of those, 8 hours, two top surgeons working um, on her brain for 8 hours. Please pray. You can pray in advance, but on Tuesday morning, pray. Tuesday brunch, pray. Tuesday lunch, pray. Fast, you can fast. Let's pray that the surgeons uh, do what they want to do. It's lovely young prayer. Okay. Pray for uh, Ray and me. You must feel so vulnerable, scared to have your child going under life. They are part of our community and have brought out their lives in the service of this community. It's our turn to love them back. You can love them by praying. Yeah. And then and then they, and then keep praying because then there comes the recovery, the recovery even from the traumatic experience that this has been in the family. But I was talking to Rhea last night and you're saying you had some days she's not doing so well, but yesterday she was quite sprightly in herself. So we just pray for that lovely resilience in young people just to come to the fall. So, um, my, my, my title is Rise Up Into Your Identity in Christ. I thought that would be like the summary of what we've been trying to say for 14 Sundays in a row. We've been going through Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, it's in the Bible if you're a new Christian or even new to church. The Bible has got 66 books. One of those books is called Ephesians. It's a document written by the Apostle Paul to a church. And this is a circular letter that's meant to go around. So glad it got in the Bible because the circular letter gets to us too. Six chapters in this book. And that first chapter, you just can't believe what you're reading. You've got to rub your eyes. You're like, is this real? Is this true? So what we've done is we've gone verse by verse through Ephesians chapter 1 for 14 weeks. And if I can be honest with you, we've just scraped the surface. We didn't have enough time. And it is, what to leave out? What to leave out? And of course, the reason this series is so powerful is I propose that the biggest question of our time, certainly in the Western world, is the question, who am I? We are an identity-besotted generation. Who am I? And, uh, you know, there are three answers to the question, who am I? The first thing is, who I am accordingly in the eyes of others. There's who I am in, in my own eyes, and there's who I am in God's eyes. For most of human history, People stopped at that first question, who am I in others' eyes? Traditionally, you find out who you were by just finding out your role in society. You're a soldier, you're a carpenter, you're a father, you're a mother, you're a child, you're a wife. Okay, done. <laughs> this is your village, this is your tribe, this is what you believe. There was a, you just find out who you were by your role. Well, um, given the Renaissance, given uh, the philosophers of the Enlightenment who said, look within for truth. We have done a new experiment and it's like, no, stop the roles. There are other people telling me who I am. And we now basically come up with the answer, I am who I am in my eyes. 
And yet we speak about our psychological states. We dig deep in with, to, to our feelings about ourselves, our true self. Now we speak about finding yourself. Might involve a trip to India. Might involve a fair amount of therapy. Some experiences and you're like, I have found myself. But it means you duck around in there and you come to a second sense of a psychological state. Of course, this can get confusing because five years later, you discover something new and then you're not so sure if you find yourself the first time. But it does bring a fair amount of instability, this latching your identity onto your present psychological state. And interestingly, our culture says, you know, actually the coolest thing to do in your life now is to defy anyone who tells you what you are that violates your sense of self. Parents now live in terror that their children will renounce them because of an ideological difference. You know? Um, so, you, so, so there's the idea that actually who other people say I am is wrong and who I think I am is the truth. So now you dig down into your psychological state and you feel you've reached ultimate reality, your sense of yourself. And then you read the Bible and realize you haven't even got to the bottom of who you are. Because there is your psychological state, but underneath that, there is uh, something more ultimately real. It's who you are in God's eyes. And the claim of the Christian gospel is, you are who you are in God's eyes. You are who you are relative to Jesus. And, uh, and the same way that those who say, you know, look within and forget the others, because what other people have said is wrong, the Christian gospel says, you might be wrong about who you think you are. Your psychological state might not be as accurate as you think. We are who we are in God's eyes. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once uh, regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The passage is speaking about identity in Christ. And it's saying, you know, we used to look at each other as we, we looked at each other from a worldly point of view. But now the gospel, we look at each other through brand new eyes. Oh my gosh, you are a person in Christ. Whoa! <laughs> and he's saying the same with Jesus. People, you know, these guys have heard about the gospel stories that are They had made up their mind about Jesus. That carpenter, the Nazarene, a little bit of excitement gathered around him. He's probably a messianic pretender. But then we realize, no, he's not just a baby in a manger. He's the Messiah coming to the earth. He's not just the son of, of Joseph. He's the son of God. Our culture has shrunk Jesus right down. You come to my house, we've just renovated and we've got a fireplace. We still want to make a fire. So far, all we've done at this fireplace, we put the cat in there and just photo. <laughs> And you turn it into an eternity scene. And you've got, you know, Henry and, 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 and Joseph and the three wise men, some shepherds, some animals. Oh, and then school, little baby Jesus. So tiny. Our culture doesn't mind baby. So we don't want it to grow up. And then our culture certainly has displaced even baby Jesus. Baby Jesus. Baby Jesus. Which that the toes? The only point of Jesus, we have shrunk him right down. And think about it, the culture does the same. It shrinks you right down. The gospel says that Jesus is much bigger than you realize. And the gospel says, you are much bigger than you realize. How was that line in the song we sang? First time I've noticed it. Then, till he appeared, 
and his soul felt its worth. Jesus' coming wasn't just the innovation of Jesus, it was the innovation of you! So my message is quite innovating, uh, what I'm going to speak on. And I want you to remember last week Judy spoke about our feet on the earth. So if I can bring Judy's message and this message together, it's like it's important that our feet are on the ground in your actual daily, minute-by-minute life. But I also suppose that it's good for your head to be in the clouds. Head in the clouds, feet on the ground. Paul's favorite term in Ephesians 1 for a Christian person is that they are in Christ. Is that they are in Christ. So when I was 16, I put my faith in Jesus, and that's when I became uh, in Christ. Some of you, maybe you did church back in church after a long time, maybe you don't believe the gospel yet, but you're here. I think you're here by divine appointment, if I can be so honest. And today I want to invite you to place your faith in Christ so you too can be in Christ. And six times in Ephesians 1, in verses 3, 4, 7, 9, 11, 13, the phrase in Christ is used or in Him. And, and what it means is that you are. Joined to Jesus through the Holy Spirit. You're joined to Him. You're not just like a car, a wheel that's, you know, bolted on, and then you can take it off. You're more like a finger in a hand. You are organically fused to Jesus. Well, you're not Jesus. But you kind of are. <laughs> you're not Jesus, but you're so identified with Him. See, a Christian identifies with Jesus, but a Christian is also someone that Jesus identifies with. The Apostle Paul wrote Ephesians. He writes of this revelation that we are in Christ that we place your faith in Jesus. When did he get, when did he make this startling discovery? Well, I don't know the story. He was anti-Jesus, anti-Christian, and he was on his way to persecute Christians, and he collided with the vision of Jesus. And he said, Lord, who are you? And the answer was, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Well, Paul wasn't persecuting Jesus, he was persecuting Christians, and then, penny drops, like, Jesus identifies with Christians. A Christian is not just somebody who identifies with Jesus. A Christian is somebody that Jesus identifies with. What means to be in Christ? So, to be in Christ means that that you are spiritually joined onto Jesus through the Holy Spirit. You've got this living link to Him. But there's another meaning uh, to be in Christ, and it's that what has happened to Jesus has happened to you. This is how the New Testament unpacks it. So, so when He died on the cross, there we were, died with Him, if you're in Christ. And when He rose from the dead, there we were, rising up with Him. And when He sat down at the right hand of the Father to rule the world. There you are seated with Him. So I've got three points for you today in answering the question, who am I in Christ? Number one, I am dead to sin. Number two, I am alive to God. And number three, I am seated with Christ. So if you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, I'm going to give you three more reasons to reconsider. Come and get it. Place your faith in Jesus. You can also be dead to sin. Come, place your faith in Jesus. You can be alive to God. Come, place your faith in Jesus. You can be seated with Christ. I'm coming up strong, I know. In the future, it's my last shot. Might not be here next year. My last shot. But you are a Christian, and I'm giving you three more ways to rise up. 
into your identity in Christ. So this started with, I am dead to sin. I am dead to sin. Listen to this passage from Romans chapter 6. I pulled out some verses here and there. We were therefore buried with him through baptism. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now if we die with Christ, we also will live with him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. And the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. So let's just hone in on the first part about being dead to sin. We, we were buried with Him. He, he dealt with sin on the cross, and in Christ, we are now dead to sin. What, what is, what's that about? Well, you really need to know if you're going to overcome sin's tantalizing appeal in your life. So imagine a world, if you will, a little different from our own. In this world, divorce is not allowed, and the only way out of marriage is to die. Now picture a woman married to a tyrant who dominates it. There is no escape. She cannot sidestep any of his commands at the moment. But there's one other fascinating feature in this world. Resurrections are possible. So how does this victim get free from the abuse? She dies. Then one day she rises again. But this time around she gets her happily ever after. She's swept off her feet by a wonderful kind man whom she marries. Then one day, she's sitting at a restaurant, and who approaches her? But her previous husband. Come home with me right away, he barks. So familiar is his voice. So ingrained is her sense of obedience to him that she starts to comply. She starts to gather her stuff to get up. But then she suddenly realizes she doesn't need to. He becomes more insistent, so she pulls out her death certificate and shows him. I think you may be confusing me with someone else. <laughs> He's only half deterred, and he maintains that she is his. So she lifts up her hand and points to her ring finger. I am married to someone else, she declares. So how do you how do you beat sin's appeal in your life? Romans chapter 6 says three things. Number one, first, count yourself dead to sin. Count yourself dead to sin. Sin had a legal claim on you in the past. But once you are in Christ, you are married to another. Now, as Romans chapter 5 says, life, grace, and righteousness is who you're married to. Now, when we speak about dead to sin, we imagine that Terry is speaking about some kind of advanced Christianity. I've been a Christian for seven years, and I go through the psychological process where I have I died to sin. You know, before you had this experience, you went dead to sin, but now you've gone through this psychological, spiritual experience, and I am dead to sin. You didn't understand it. The moment you placed your faith in Jesus, it happened. <clears throat> Paul doesn't mean here that you need to die to sin more and more. His point is that you have already died to sin. He's talking about a specific event that has already happened. This is basic Christian education. You don't know it until you're taught it. You become a Christian, but sin still feels so appealing 
You feel like you have to sin. Before you just sin because sin came and took you by the neck and said, come, come with me. And you're like, okay. It comes to you again, it feels so familiar. These barking orders are so, you've heard them. But you need to know, you can say no. Come to yourself, then you said, all you need to do is realize what has happened to you. I've heard enough stories of people fighting against some particular grandson in their life. And this was the pivotal discovery that, that was the thing that turned the, the tide in their battle against this particular sin. So first, count yourself dead to sin. Look in the mirror and say, you are dead to sin. It's a spiritual reality. You don't have to feel it. You just have to believe it. And then second, refuse to offer any part of your life to sin. Defy sin's demand on your life. Whatever history you have with sin, it's just that history. Familiar as its marching orders may feel, Hold up your death to, death, death to sin certificate and your marriage to Christ forever. And then lastly, offer up your body and every part of your body to righteousness. Jesus has once and for all freely offered his life up for you on the cross. So this day, every day, offer up your life to righteousness. You belong to Jesus, not to sin. Did you get that? Count yourself dead to sin. Refuse to offer any part of your life to sin. And offer up every part of your life to righteousness. I think pretty much every day of your life, those two things you, we need to do. <laughs> Cut yourself dead to sin. Remind yourself to sin. Feel so real. So insistent. Shouldn't sin in charge of me. No. You're dead to sin. I mean, it's pretending to be in charge of you. Call it blood. And then refuse to offer any part of your life to sin. No. Pre and then and offer up all your life to righteousness. To Jesus. Okay, so that's my first point. I am dead to sin. Do you want to try those words out? I am dead to sin. Feels pretty cool, eh? Number two, I am alive to God. I am alive to God. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 46. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. I'm going to come back to that. Dead in transgressions, what's that about? It's by grace you've been saved, and God raised us up with Christ. So, so next in Ephesians 1, let me just put the slide up. Paul says that the power that is available to those of us in Christ is the same as the, I'm going to quote it, mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. So he's speaking about power. Maybe last week spoke about this power. And Paul is trying to describe this power, but he surprises us. To describe God's power for us, he doesn't refer to God's universe creating power. If you wanted to really describe something powerful, you'd say, the same power God used that spoke the universe into being. He doesn't choose that. Actually, there was a moment in history where God exerted even a greater power. Was in the resurrection of Jesus. Why is that? Well, creation is a triumph over nothingness and formlessness. But resurrection is a triumph over the death and destruction that sin plunged creation into. So to describe this resurrection power and energy, Paul steps word upon word in a short sentence. In rapid sequence, he says, power, might, strength, exerted, See, as the tomb opened and Jesus exited, an energy was released that sent shockwaves of light.
life and new creation across the universe. For this is a power that it would eventually lead to the renewal of all creation and the salvation of every person in Christ. On that first Easter morning, Jesus defeated not only his own death, but ours too. So what does it mean to be dead in sin or dead in our transgressions? So when a great branch falls from a tree, you can have that picture of it. It still has life in it, even though it has now been cut from its source. It has a bleak future, as the death inside eventually will become the death outside. That is the state of the human race outside of Jesus. God brings life, but it's been severed from its source. And it's something that it, it, it feels hard to believe. I've got so many non-Christian friends and family members. You hang out with them, they don't walk away going, those guys are dead. They feel very alive. Very alive. I mean, people appear to be alive. I mean, the athlete's body is a wound-up spring of great energy and ability. The lover's affection will cross the oceans in pursuit of the beloved. The author's mind reaches the heights of brilliance. The artist's creation blows our hair back in wonder. So our physicality, our emotionality, our rationality, our creativity, our personality, they are very alive with God-given life. But the deepest part of us, the part that matters supremely, according to the Christian gospel, is dead. And I don't know the experience of every human, but I can refer to my own. I was 16 years old when I came alive to God. Within myself, within my personal spiritual capacity, I was cut off from God. I was as unresponsive to God's presence and voice as a corpse is to a doctor. See, those first 16 years are different from the years since then, because in those years I was blind to Jesus' glory. I was deaf to the Spirit's voice, and my heart did not, simply could not, leap towards the Father with expecting, trusting delight. When I came alive to God, I received a new capacity to perceive Jesus' glory, to hear the Spirit's voice, and to want to leap towards the Father in expectant delight. That's what it means to be alive to God. I think about my friends who are not yet alive to God. That's what they're missing out on. That's what I've been the gospel. And Jesus alone can raise us from the dead. Until the Prince awakens us with his kiss of grace, we are amongst the living dead. As Jesus said, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So when his dear friend Lazarus had already been four days in the tomb, Jesus proclaimed to the dead man's sister, he said, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do believe this. And he proved the truth of this claim, you know, like, what, a few minutes or an hour later? He called out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! We can have that image. Lazarus, come forth! And what happened next? Well, Lazarus came forth! Why? Because the one who called is not merely the giver of life, but life itself. In the same way, Jesus called forth life in our inner being, and we are made alive. Christ. I know it's such an uncool phrase that I don't I'll never actually tell my 
Britain say, I'm born again. It's got a weird association, but it's a pretty apt description <laughs> to what happened to me. I came alive to God when I was 16 years old. Jeez, it's been a few decades since then. I'm still alive to God! <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> I've been in some lousy psychological states. Lost myself and find myself many times. The one thing I've not changed since I was 16 years old is that there was the life of God inside of me. saying, 
favourite thing is talking about all the competition to Christ's authority. You're already seated with Christ. You know, when Jesus was on earth, he ministered through his physical body, but now he ministers through his spiritual body, the church. Now, I love the message paraphrase of this verse. It says, the church is not peripheral to the, to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, in which he fills everything with his presence. I know, it's mind-blowing stuff. It's like, I can't come do this. Can't be true. Feels like you're taking psychedelics that no one is really ingesting psychedelics. Woo! Woo! I love that saying that I said the other day, like, it's uh, possible to preach yourself happy. I'm preaching myself happy here. I haven't personally improved my life. I'm just realizing what Jesus has done for me, and it puts me into a very lucky frame of mind. My psychological state starts to adjust to my spiritual state. Thrashed the wings to 
fly a few feet into the air, years pass. And the eagle grew very old. One day she saw above in the cloudless sky a magnificent bird, gliding with graceful majesty, with scarcely a beat of its golden wings. The old eagle looked up in awe and asked her neighbor, what kind of bird that was? That's the eagle. The king of the birds came to reply, it belongs to the sky. We belong to the earth. So the eagle lived and died a chicken, for that's what she thought she was. You realize who you are in Christ. Every rediscovery of this, it beckons you to take out your wings and fly. And ask you to stand up to the band back on the stage. Time of 
to give in a seat out of the chariot. 